Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. Well, we continue from last week. <laughs> and uh, we start with the invocation of Om. That is whole. This is whole. From wholeness emerges wholeness. Wholeness comes from wholeness. Wholeness still remains. And then the Isha Upanishad. All this is for the habitation by the Lord. Whatsoever is individual universe of movement in the universal motion, by that renounced thou shouldst enjoy. Lust not after any man's possessions. Doing verily works in this world, one should wish to live a hundred years. Thus it is in thee and not otherwise than this. Action cleaves not to a man. Sunless are those worlds and enveloped in blind gloom, where all they in their passing hence resort who are slayers of their souls. One unmoving, that is swifter than mind, that the gods reach not, for it progresseth ever in front. That, standing, passes beyond others as they run. In that, the master of life establishes the waters. Well, that's as much of a conundrum as ever you want to come across. <laughs> In the very early days of humanity in India, there are three strains. <clears throat> there is African, the Indian, and the Chinese. That have, uh, you know, we're with the African, which is Egypt. Uh, that which went from Egypt to Greece, to Rome, and then to Europe. This is what we are in, involved in. And then we have an interest in India, uh, out of which, of course, comes Buddhism, amongst the other five. <clears throat> and then China, uh, with its Taoism. And uh, no one really knows how old China is or what they had because they kept themselves isolated from the world, from the rest of the world. 
uh, we know that our background is very ancient. And uh, the Indian, maybe even a little more so. But in those early days, in India, now, the religious thinkers, the seers, the rishis, and so on, they came to know by experience uh, what is called the eternal unity of existence. And this eternal unity holds everything in its embrace. It holds all that has come to be. And uh, somewhere once I read, and I don't know who I'm quoting, but I'm quoting somebody, all the becomings in the beings which are in non-being are held in the, universe, in the unity of existence, non-existence. It sounds like it comes out of the Orient. Mm -hmm. This unity pervades the universe, and at the same time, it also transcends it. Now, all things, things in quotes, <laughs> all things, all beings, be they sentient or insentient, all beings are included in this unity from, you know, the rocks and the weeds and the dogs and cats and you and me. And we are all included in this unity. We are all part of it. We are all fragments of it. Now, this unchanging reality transcends this phenomenal universe. In India, as you see, they call this the Brahman. And... Um, it is indestructible. Also, the indestructible spirit in man, the indestructible spirit in man is called Atman. Brahman and Atman. The same in nature. Atman and Brahman. Yeah. You know, it's like... Uh, when we read the prologue to John, as the word was with God, so Atman is with Brahman. And that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into this world. However, human beings being what they are, as they are, the statement that Atman is Brahman which they call the first principle, has caused a great deal of difficulty. There are those who hear this phrase, people who read, you know, uh, people who do not have maybe somebody uh, to help them over the rough spots, or they have no one that points a finger, to a more correct direction so that one can better understand. Uh, those who do not seek in the proper direction, see, 
they take the ego function to be the Atman. And away they go, you know, on the wings of their own importance and their self-righteousness. The word Brahman comes from the Sanskrit, uh, from the root, meaning to expand. Now, the different philosophies have categorized different points of view, different theories, such as we have idealism, realism, pragmatism, materialism, spiritualism, pantheism, and uh, etc., and on so Mainly, uh, when we're talking about these categories, we think of materialists, and spiritualists. Um, you know, body and soul, body and spirit, body and soul, body, material, and spirit. Hmm? Spiritualists. Now, in uh, Soviet Russia and China and the other communist countries, they speak of themselves as being materialists. Actually, they're communists. They deny God. They deny consciousness. They deny the soul. They deny the unmanifest. They believe this world. They got a little psychic stuff in there, too. <laughs> this world. Yeah. Uh, there are times and frequent times when uh, the ordinary materialist comes eventually to the point where he says, yeah, well, there's a higher being, you know, or there's an ultimate something. But in this materialist, the word matter comes from a root which means that which can be measured. A meter, a measure. Everything can be measured. So what then about the immeasurable? Everything can be measured. Now, whether one denies the immeasurable or not is of no concern to this immeasurable. No. It is of no concern to the universe as such, which you believe or don't believe, huh? No. The immeasurable is present. Now, here and in this room, the immeasurable. And the mystics have been saying this for a long, long time. Now, the physicists are saying it. Hmm? The immeasurable is present. Existence is immeasurable. It is so vast, it cannot be measured. And they also tell us that this vastness is expanding. 
It's Brahman. Hmm. Already infinite, already perfect, in its continuum moves from one perfection to another perfection, always in this here-now perfection continuum. It is never a question of moving from perfection to from imperfection to perfection. It is always perfection now, here, now, continuing now, here, this perfection. Yeah. <laughs> and it is always expanding. It's incredible, huh? You can't even think it, you know. And it is such a paradox. The mind just doesn't accept it because in its own way, this you look at it and it's illogical. It's not reasonable, you know. It should be either or, but not both. Hmm? But this morning, of course, we're not here to think logically, you know. We're here to find out something about ourselves or a word or a thought or a suggestion that will point into the direction of the reality of ourselves. Hmm? Yeah. Then we have the other side of the coin of materialism, those who call themselves spiritualists. And they're always trying to prove that this world is an illusion. Only spirit exists, that's all. Okay. Everything else is maya. It's all illusion, doesn't exist at all. It's all untrue. Whatever is here is not true. See, All is of the same stuff that dreams are made of. What then happens to the idea of karma? It's all illusion. Of course, the materialists do the same thing from the opposite pole. There's no spirit, only matter. <clears throat> if by some wild chance they should stumble across something that could be called spirit, well, then they say that's a byproduct of matter, nothing more. Hmm? It, that it has no substance of its own, that it is matter that really gives it substance. See, so matter is real and spirit is a shadow. And in the Gospel of St. Thomas, we read where Jesus says, if the flesh has come into existence because of the spirit, it is a marvel. But if the spirit has come into existence because of the body, because of matter, it is a marvel of marvels. Then he goes on to say, but I marvel at how this great wealth has made its home in this poverty. See, he doesn't answer the question except to say how this great wealth came to be in this poverty. See, even so long ago, 
this argument is going on? Is it spirit or is it matter? What do you think? Hmm? What do you think? You know, there have been times in our lives, I think we're all old enough for this, that we have settled upon one way or another of thinking, some mode of thinking, some direction, and we use this to the exclusion of all else, naturally, you know. And then we are caught in a web of our own thinking. And surely we have tried to think about the situation in which we find ourselves, whatever situation that might be, you know. I venture to say you've given some thought about life or you wouldn't be here having your thinking processes disrupted. <laughs> it's good to take a, 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 a set of ideas, a doctrine or a tradition, a set of ideas, huh? and mill around in them until you pretty much begin to believe, yeah, this is really the way it is, and then step back out of it and step into another one. And then see what happens to you. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like Dr. Plotoff said with, with his first teacher. He presented to him a system, and he sold him on it. You know, this, this is the way it is, until Henry was really believing this is the way it is. This nice mental structure that he could run around in and use his brains in and everything, you know. And then he just went and took it all away from him. Then he built another one, just as pretty, just as logical, just as reasonable, and he let him play around in this. And he took it away. He showed him where it was all false. That's how we learn to think. If we just get into this structure, which is the web of our own thinking, you know, and mill around in this, we have excluded everything else. And that is not so good. We should, you know, allow it in and... and Mill around in it and pick out what really is and, and sort of discard the rest. Hmm? So, uh, this supreme Brahman, which we call God, or the Godhead, you're talking about the mystics and like Meister Eckhart. The Supreme cannot be identified by any characteristic sign or attribute. So it is said that he is indescribable and unknowable, because we know things by characteristics. Hmm. Yeah. How is any object known? You pick up an orange, so it's round, and its color is orange, and it has an odor. So we know this is something 
that we have been taught to call an orange. It's an orange. We know through objects. We are in objective identification. We know through the senses or by the mind. Form is the object of the eye. The eye, when it reports, it makes forms. Form is the object of the eye. Sound is the object of the ear. Touch is the object of the skin. Smell is the object of the nose. And taste is the object of the tongue. But this Brahman is without image, without form, without sound, without touch, without smell, without taste. He is not an object of vision. No one sees him with a physical eye. But now, now in, in, in India, and so of course in Buddhism, the mind is thought of as the sixth sense. We have the five senses, and the mind is the sixth sense. I think there's something like 18 altogether senses, although I think that science is even up that now, that there's like 300 and something. I heard that on TV one night. They didn't go any further than that, though, too bad. Anyway, the mind is thought of as the sixth sense. It is the sense of perception. Through the mind, you know, this particular sense perception, one experiences feelings such as pleasure and pain, elation and depression. This is the way that humankind has developed with these senses. We didn't do it ourselves by any means, or we all be very different. But this has been the road of the evolution, we could call it. Huh? Something must be object in order for us to know it. If there is no object, I can't know it, we say. Hmm? whether it's an object out there or an object in the mind, we do have, we are capable human beings of, that the thing doesn't have to be in front of us. We can go home and think of this tree. Yeah. Now we come to this Brahman and they speak of him, he's not an object. They speak of him as the eternal subject that it is the substratum of all experience, that he is in every experience that you have. But he is never the object of the experience, but he is always present. Nothing exists, say the scriptures, except Brahman. And all that can be said about it is that it is. This makes it pretty difficult to find. Huh? 
Now, uh, Vedanta describes Brahman in this way. They talk about it as being Satchitananda. A Sat being ex ex existence, reality. Asat means not reality or untrue. Asat is the world. Sat is Brahman. And then they talk about, and Chit is the consciousness or knowing or mind, and Ananda is bliss. This is bliss. And now in the Hindu picture, there comes this argument. Is this term, Satchitananda, meant to apply to the unconditioned Nirguna Brahman or to the Saguna Brahman, the conditioned? It has all the Saguna Brahman has all the attributes of kind and good and loving and jealous and wrathful and unsurvivor. I got the unsurvivor going this morning instead of etc. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now this is something that basically <clears throat> you should dig out for yourselves. Satchitananda. Does he belong to what we call a personal god or to the Godhead? Now, they say that the Supreme Brahman is neither being nor non-being, neither consciousness nor matter, neither happiness nor unhappiness. And they say, and I quote, when the light has risen, there is no day, no night, neither existence nor non-existence. Shiva, the blessed one alone, is. Now that's out of the Hindu thing. That's, you know, Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu. That's their, their trinity, right? Shiva alone is. See? In this picture, consciousness is denied. Which position is based on the statement that there can be no subject without an object? If the Supreme is one alone, there is naturally enough no object. There is no other. And if there is no object, then automatically, they say, there is no subject because the object puts the subject into that position of being subject. And so they say there's no consciousness because consciousness is what is subject or how we view subject. That's the thinking of this mental structure. When there is duality, then one knows another. But when that alone is all, how should one know another? You know, it's really quite a problem the way they put things sometimes, and I wonder if you've ever given any thought to it. I think you should. 
Shankaryacharya says the non-dual Atman cannot be at the same time both the knower and the object of the knowledge. So this supreme Brahman does not know itself because it is both subject and object in a non-dual state. Now, this is a school of thought, and I'm not saying it's so, and I'm not saying it's not so. It's how some people think. And uh, how do you think? What do you think about it? Hmm? does not exist as an object like a pot or a bush. Hmm? No. It exists as absolute existence. And just as a mirage cannot exist without the desert, so the universe cannot exist without this supreme. Nothing can exist without this absolute existence, which is without object and without subject. But we begin, and we have the positions, there is a subject-object relationship. And there is a relationship. Hmm? Between subject and object, there is relationship. You know something about Tao? There is a relationship between subject and object. Hmm? And then there is, of course, also the relationship of object-subject. These are, these are positions for meditation. And then at one time we are subject only. And then at one time we are object only. And then what? Something comes. Something comes after that. Yeah. You can think back to the time when we did something with this Bob Song's of a tamasaka, huh? And there is that in it. I've given these positions. You should remember them. Not just sit and look at me there. I've never heard of anything like that before. <laughs> now, in India, um, you know, here comes this netty netty. Not this, not this, and not this, and not this which we call the via negativa, the negative way to go, denying everything, every object is being God. That is, we deny empirical reality. We negate it. It's not this, it's not this. God is not this, and God is not this, and God is not this. Until we have negated to the point 
for all that is, is left, all that now exists is this absolute. Hmm? This Brahman, or this Sat, about which nothing can be said. But the luster of it, or the shine of it, the shine of this that they call sat is called cheat. And the nature of this cheat is called ananda. Ananda. Hmm. Now this shine, this cheat, or consciousness, hmm? of Brahman is not like the consciousness with which we ordinarily deal because this consciousness is not related to an object. That which gives light to the senses so that we know what they are reporting that which gives light to the mind in the states of its sleeping and dreaming and waking is called cheat, this light. Ananda, the bliss, hmm? like the, in the word Vivekananda, this, this man with this, such a silvery voice that they called it the bliss of speaking. Vivekananda. Hmm? And of course, uh, Buddha's uh, attendant, his cousin, who waited on him for 40 years, was called Ananda. Thus I have heard, he says, because he was the perfect memory. Now, this Ananda, this bliss, is not a kind of a happiness that we ordinarily experience with our senses. You know, it has been described as the kind of a happiness that accompanies deep, deep, deep sleep. Hmm? When the distinction of subject and object is erased, Hmm. Consciousness comes to a halt. Hmm. Object is erased. This consciousness halt. This non-dual state. See? Here comes the experience of bliss. See? The non-ego state, the non-dual state, the nature of bliss. Meister Eckhart said somewhere in the, these translations that they have done of him, there is a shine in me, which I call my reason. R, capital R. Huh? There is a shine, which is my reason. And the reason, of course, from the Greek, reason the word, you know, made flesh. 
what we call happiness, true happiness, is of the nature of the true identity. If a person thinks that happiness comes about because of external causes of what you do for me or what I do for you, you know, and uh, my possessions and so on and so on, then it would be logical to come to the conclusion that my happiness would increase with the increase of possessions. Hmm? And it would diminish with the lack of possessions. And if one has no possessions at all, then happiness is nil. Hmm? It's non-existing. However, in deep sleep, we are totally devoid of possessions, including our own bodies, including the ability to say, I. Yeah. We're happy. Instead of being unhappy, we are quite happy with a good night's sleep. Everybody wants a good night's sleep. Huh? They want to sleep soundly, as we say, dead to the world, sound asleep. Did it ever occur to you that your, your biggest moment of happiness in your life dead to the world, sound asleep. Because there's no subject-object. You're home. Hmm? Happiness, then, you know, is inherent in an individual. It's inherent in all of us. We're born with it. And it is not due to something outside. No. You, all you have to do is realize what is true to realize this sat, you know, and it opens all the doors to happiness or bliss. Hmm? Hmm. Now, they also go on to say that existence, consciousness, mind, bliss, are not attributes of this Brahman, not something we have given. They are the very essence of him. No. He is not endowed with these three because he is existence himself. He is bliss himself. He is knowing himself. This is what he is. Huh? Not something added on, or, you know, or given to him. You know, water is wet. You know, that's the essence of water, to be wet. It's not something we have given it. That is what it is. And so this Brahman is is knowing. Hmm? Is the very existence itself. Hmm? And we say, God is love, God is will, and God is power. 
These have not been added on to him. This is what it is. It is the very essence of what is. In Christianity, we have the three persons, the Trinity, the three persons in one. Hmm? These three aspects. This is the mystery of Christianity. Okay. Now, now <clears throat> you see all these words, <laughs> all these words, You must find out for yourself through experience, not just belief. Of course, I haven't given you very much to believe this morning. I think more you're going around like this. But you don't just listen to words. You give it some thought, and then you let it go. And you sit and see what comes about. (coughs) It may even be that it's difficult for somebody to grasp this in words. Hmm. So all the more, find out for yourself. Find out for yourself, please. There was a philosopher one morning, and he was walking down the street. And he, you know, there were poles in the street, telephone poles, quite a few of them set fairly close together, as they were at one time. And as he went by, he touched every pole. You know how he did? Touched every pole. And finally, somebody stopped him and wanted to know. He asked him, Mr. Professor, why are you touching all these poles? And the philosopher turned around and looked at him and grinned and said, why are you not touching all these poles? Hmm. Doing verily works in this world, one should wish to live a hundred years. Thus it is in thee, and not other than this. Action cleaves a nut to a man. Well, they speak of 100 years of working, doing verily works in this world. Well, that's 100 years of devoting oneself to meditation, to rituals and contemplations. And if one is doing it in the right frame of mind, and the right attitude, you see, one should wish to live a hundred years to do this. One should wish to live forever to do this. Uh, this kind of a devotion to it, and this kind of an awe and wonder, this continuing, you know, one should wish to live a hundred years. Yeah. And there are some people who think that the span of a man's life should be a hundred years. 
also, somebody told me about this subject a long time ago. Somebody told me this. This 100 years, it relates to the invocation. That is whole, this is whole. We have the that and the this, huh? that and this. The two aspects, we can say, of one hand. The manifest and the unmanifest. The phenomenon and the noumenon. And uh, we usually speak of them, particularly of that, as zero. Hmm? There's nothing. It's non-being. No subject, no object. Zero. Yeah? Now, uh, Buddha, you know, when he sat in his meditation, and you will see the... I have to move out over here. When you, when, when you see pictures of him sitting in meditation, his hands are like this in his lap. Hmm? The Joan Mudra. We went through those. Then there is the variation of that. You see, it goes like this, with the two zeros, this and that. Hmm? Samadhi. They move together. one whole, and so we've had the one of the hundred, the two zeros together, and then there's one. One hundred, when we should wish to live, a hundred years. So it's a symbolic number. Somebody told me this once. They're rather esoteric, huh? So these seeming two, body and soul, world and God, the changing and unchanging, the time and the timelessness, Matter and spirit, or matter and consciousness, represented by these two zeros. They become one. They are not antagonistic toward each other. No. One is not pitted against the other. So much as some people do say that matter has become a sin, and it is therefore to be condemned. No. They are just two aspects that should become one. A full material existence and a full spiritual life. Hmm? Wholeness. Do not be divided against yourself. Thus it is in thee and not other than this. The union, or this unity, is in you. Now, this action cleaves not to a man. Well, here we come with this old problem. Karma. Activity. The word karma means activity, your actions. And so mostly people have an erroneous idea of karma and reincarnation. And I think sometimes a pretty good practice is just to drop the whole thing until you find out something about it for yourself, through your own experience, rather than you pick up what something somebody else believed, and you don't know whether it's true or not. Yeah. So karma is your activity. Your karma is what you do. You're working, you're sleeping, 
your sexing, your shopping, your cooking, your walking, your activity. From whence cometh it? How come? You can do all these things. How come? How do you do anything? How come? Your body. Your body has more persuasion in it than you can ever imagine that has built you into the kind of a character that you are. It's your body. This very body, this very body is Buddha. Yeah, this very body. At the moment of birth, there is already in it which will be the cause of our demise, barring accidents. This very body, of which we know so little, has within its structure our tendencies. You know, it's like two children are born into a family. One child becomes an alcoholic and a bum, and the other becomes a very successful businessman. We've seen it happen. I have seen it happen. Hmm? Is it the mother's fault? Is it the father's fault? Is it the fault of the environment? Maybe these all contributed thereto, but thus it is in thee, and not otherwise than this. Hmm? Your very body is your mode. It's your vehicle of action in this changing world, this changing body. Hmm. Your body is a living body. It is a groping of senses. And when it dies, you know, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, now what of its activities? Action cleaves not to a man. Hmm. What about this? What about this? How are you going to cope with this, with what we already believe, with this karma thing? <clears throat> now, within all of this changing, there does reside this that does not change. The unchanging resides within the changing. It is always there. I mean, we have such a very good example of it in ourselves, and you see it every day of your life. What within you has not changed, ever? God is sitting right there, huh? Look at Say something, anything. Anything. Say something about yourself. What in you never changes? What in you never changes? I, certainly. As long as you can remember in this life, I has been right there, and it doesn't change. Right? You see that all the time. There is something unchanging in the changing.
put in this unchanging eye, this eye that we say all the time, there is hidden, in that eye, there is hidden the Atman. I mean, we, you do differentiate what is called self, true self. One differentiates it from the ego self. There is a story in India, and it, I think all the religions have come to use it. It describes the state of human affairs. There is a carriage. It may be a lovely carriage, it may be a lousy carriage, but it's a carriage and it's got four wheels and, and there is this enclosed part, you know, for somebody to sit. And uh, there, is, there are these horses that are going along, maybe you've only got two or maybe you've got four, maybe you've got 20, I mean, these horses, you know, on front. And it, they're on reins, of course. And then there is this driver that sits up on, in the front of the carriage there, and he tries to drive these, he, with the reins to control these horses, you know. And there is a passenger in this carriage. And this carriage is going pell-mell down the road. Now, this carriage is your body. It's the human body. The horses are our desires, and they do lead us willy-nilly and nilly-willy, and we don't know where we're going nine-tenths of the time because these horses are madly rushing around, yeah. any and every direction. And this poor driver up there, you know, he's holding the reins of the desires. He's the ego. Yeah. He's barely able to manage because he's usually caught in the desires along with the horses. Yeah. And the horses are running amok. Then he gains a little bit of control for a while and then they run amok again. Within the carriage, all the shades are drawn. You can't see in. But within that carriage, it's the master, and he is called the true self. Now and then he peeks out, or he may give some instruction to this driver. Very brief moments. The rest of the time he remains hidden behind the scenes, behind the screen. Hmm? All of the activity of the desires and the rushing around is of no concern to him whatsoever. None of the action cleaves to the master, to the man. He has never had, nor will he ever have, any karma. Never. His light shines and shines and shines. It shines on the activities of the mind, the thoughts. It shines on the feelings. It shines on the sensations. It shines on the tendencies. He does not renounce or accept any of it. He is. He just shines. 
He is the light that lighteth the stage, that lighteth the actors, that lighteth the audience. He lights, but he is not involved. Nothing clings to him. And so one should, in this world, work in a non-attachment. So that one acts in the awareness of the moment, and then one walks in freedom. Okay? I'm sorry I bored you. Heavy stuff and can be boring, especially if you're not accustomed to thinking about it. Yeah. And now, may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate, one from another. And I thank you. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.